Good morning, ladies. We can go ahead and start. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners in the hour of our death. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So before we begin our last talk, our last reflection today, just one brief note. I know we're on our last day of retreat, and we are excited to finish, go home, and talk again. But just, you know, it's that was that challenge, that last Sunday morning to, to maintain the silence that we had for the entire retreat. Uh, it's important, I think, for our own selves, but also for others, too. Um, remember, everybody kind of has their own thing they're trying to listen to. So let's just try to be very careful in those last few hours we have here of maintaining that silence, trying not to whisper. I know we're excited to get out and share with everything, but let's just maintain that for the last few hours. So we're offering today, or I'm offering my final reflection. We've seen sort of the structure of the heart. Uh, heart is a home or a sanctuary. We've seen the I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, the diastole phase as the blood enters the heart and it begins to expand to this median point that we talked about. And then now the blood rushes out to the rest of the body. This is the systole phase as it pushes out, as it contracts to go to the rest of the body. And so I kind of use this as a way of talking about that we have been given people, our children, our family, our friends, people to love, but we've got to let them go. You cannot hold on to them. You cannot cling. You cannot grasp. You've got, you've received them from God. You've got to give them back to God. You've got to give them back to give them the freedom to be able to make choices in their own lives. And so we are learning to let those go whom God has given to us and whom we love, not grasping at them. And so this idea came from a couple of places. One, again, looking at the heart itself. And so we saw how the blood comes in through the atria, but now it goes out through the ventricles, the part of the heart where the blood goes to the rest of the body, into the aorta and the pulmonary artery. But ventris, the ventricle, comes from the Latin word ventris, which means the womb or the belly. You know, the blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, to a ventris in the Latin. It holds, but then it gives birth to. It sends it out. Uh, and so it's sort of like the heart is giving birth to and sending out our children, sending out those we love. This is, of course, for women, understand it, but for men, too, St. Paul in Galatians 4.19 says, My children for whom I am again in labor until Christ be formed in you. And this is a difficult process for all of us. We are bringing forth souls. We are bringing life to those who have been given to us. And so that's the first part. I mean, just sort of etymologically where I came to this understanding of like the ventricle sending out, giving birth and letting go. But also in my own experience, you know, I teach at the seminary now and have done so for two and a half years, but for the previous 11 years, I worked as a campus minister on the UL's campus. 
And I worked with hundreds of young people over the course of those 11 years who would hang out at Wisdom, who would come to Mass, and who would get it involved. And I think that even though, unlike a lot of parishes, you you, you got to leave your people. But I still keep in touch with a lot of the former students. Uh, and it's really been a gift. I think I'm pretty good at being intentional with most of them, and many of them are good at being intentional with me. And over the course of the past month or so, about eight people actually sort of asked me the same question. Father, how do you do it? Probably thinking, Father, how does you as a dude do it? <laughs> how do you hold space for so many people and keep in touch and reach out and go over to people's houses? And particularly walking through a lot of people during their struggles. You're walking with college students. There is going to be drama. There's going to be tears. And I also, too, even though I haven't really spoken about it a lot, I've worked with lots of abuse cases, some pretty horrific physical, sexual abuse and trauma. And I do it generally without getting exhausted. Now, if, if I got to talk to people until 9 p.m. at night, I do get exhausted. So I'm sorry if I was a little short last night. I was just <laughs> zonked out. But I'm good this morning. I went run. It was beautiful. I'm good. I feel normal. How do I do it without getting exhausted or emotionally drained? How do I, I keep space for that? And I'm not saying that I am an icon for doing this, but I think I do a pretty good job of it. And I realized that I didn't have an answer. I don't know how. I just do it. I get joy from it. I enjoy it. So I thought and prayed about it a lot. Like How, how is it possible? And so that's what I kind of want to share. Like, how is it possible that I can hold space, but also kind of let people go? Go do what they need to do. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me that, that much. Some it does, but not too much. You'll see how. And my answer is sort of like the, this whole talk, but there are really two essential points to it. And the first one is this, and it's something that I remember learning at the seminary, but over my time as a priest now and as a spiritual father, I've learned is sort of the key, not just for me, not just for priest or religious, but for everybody, is learning that true love is possession in detachment. Possession in detachment. And this is a phrase that comes from an uh, Italian priest who passed away a number of years ago, Monsignor Luigi Giussani, the Italian possesso nel distacco. And this is the way he sort of describes what he calls virginal or pure love, but I think it is love applied to everyone. as a way that we, another belongs to us. We possess you, but I, I don't grasp. I don't cling. In fact, distacco, I'm not, I'm not touching you. You're there, but I'm not clinging on to you. If you know anything about Monsignor Giussani, who's the founder of Community Liberation, he knows about word salad, saying a bunch of things, a lot of words that normal people can say in about two or three words. And so this is how he describes it. He says, when you really love in f with freedom, you bond freely to another saying you. You say it with a veneration, with a yard or half a yard or a few inches of detachment which is truly inherent to virginity, possession and detachment within. Basically saying, you, I love you, you are there, but there's a little space there. I'm not gonna smother you. I'm not gonna grasp you. I'm going to let you be you. I am going to give you freedom. So here, possession, the beloved belongs to you, 
But you're not smothering. You're not clinging. You're not controlling. You're not freaking out that you're going to lose this other person. Because the, the blood has to leave the ventricle. It has to leave the heart. The baby can't stay in the womb for more than nine months. Probably none of you would want a baby to stay in your womb for longer than nine months. Now, I'm not advocating here, nor is he some this crazy form of detachment that I think some people think is necessary. I need to be detached. Like Jean Vianney, he, he didn't even hug his mother. That's ridiculous. Okay? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm so detached. No. No. You can be healthily attached to people. You can be healthily attached to things. But you can also be unhealthily attached. And so it's this false idea. But the real key is... The, the, the possession and attachment loving is one that respects freedom. I give you your freedom. You give me my freedom. Letting the other be willing to cherish them, but also willing to let them go. Is it easy? No, it's not. And so what it's all really rooted in is what? A realization that the beloved is a gift. Remember we talked about givenness. Oh, these people were given to me. My children were given to me. My friends were given to me. I'm tasked with them. Well, if you're tasked with them and there's a gift, then guess what? There's stewardship there. You're tasked to love them, to form them, to build them up, and you can delight in the gift. I love it. I love my children. I love my family. I love the people that are given to me. And I can delight in it. And I, and I can give thanks to God, realizing that, hey, you have given this to me. I didn't create these people. I didn't create these bonds. But realize that one day you're going to have to give the gift back. Maybe in many small ways, and sometimes in the real big way, by death, by letting the person go. Is it painful? Yes. It's all these types of detachment are painful, but it's the way of learning to live where we don't grasp and we're willing to, 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 to let the gift go back. And so the person, of course, did this perfectly was Jesus. And so writing about this, Father Paolo Prosperi, who is a disciple of Luigi Giussani, says, How did Christ see and love people? How did he gaze upon the world? Christ saw everything, the flower, the bird, the Samaritan woman, as well as each of his disciples, as a gift from the Father. It's coming to him, as it were, out of the bottomless mystery of the Father. Better yet, Jesus saw his disciples as a gift of the Father entrusted to his care, as a gift to be cared for and to give his life for. He saw it. Jesus saw the apostles as a gift. And he says this at the Last Supper. They are your gift to me. He was attached to his apostles. He had preference for certain apostles, Peter, James, and John. It's all right for us to have preference for certain people. Some people are just going to get on our nerves. Some people we just get along with. I don't know why it is. But he realized at the Last Supper, I'm going back to the Father, and I'm going to have to give them back. I cannot possess them. But probably, like, of all the things that I've read about or thought about possession and detachment, and the best one I've read comes from Pope Francis talking about St. Joseph. And he did this in his beautiful letter from a couple years ago, Patris Corday. It's a long quote, but, I mean, like, if you will get this quote, you get what possession and attachment is. And again, we're talking about men having to do it, but women are called to do it too, as we're going to see. It says, being a father, but I say being a father slash mother, entails introducing children to life and reality. 
not holding them back, being overprotective or possessive, but rather making them capable of deciding for themselves, enjoying freedom and exploring new possibilities. Perhaps for this reason, Joseph is traditionally called a most chaste father. So this possession and attachment is chaste love. That title is not simply a sign of affection, but the summation of an attitude that is the opposite of possessiveness. Chastity is freedom from possessiveness in every sphere of one's life. Only when love is chaste is it truly love. A possessive love ultimately becomes dangerous. It imprisons, constricts, and makes for misery. God himself loved humanity with a chaste love. He left us free even to go astray and set ourselves against him. The logic of love is always the logic of freedom. And Jews, Joseph knew how to love with extraordinary freedom. He never made himself the center of things. He did not think of himself, but focused instead on the lives of Mary and Jesus. Does this make sense? This is loving chastely. Mary, Jesus, don't belong to me. I've got to love them. I've got to form them. But I've got to let them go. I gotta let them go. And it's something that I'll be honest, I, I think men might be better at. Because we're good at introducing kids into the world. And sometimes the world sucks. And sometimes it's painful. And you gotta suck it up and you gotta do it. Mom's a little bit more overprotective. And I get it. I, I totally get it. I, I remember one of the stories I tell a lot. I was with families at a baptism, um, and, and you know how sometimes like I don't know, the men are going outside and hanging out and the women are inside having coffee or something. And, and gosh, I remember, one of the boy, little kids kicked a soccer ball and the soccer ball went and just like aimed right at this like little five-year-old girl's face. I mean, just pow in the face. And the little girl, you could tell it smart, it hurt. She went to her dad like this and was about to cry and go inside to see her mom. And he said, no, 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 come over here. You're gonna be fine. Let's not go tell mom, because if you tell mom, <laughs> World War III is going to start. <laughs> Take a breath. You're going to be okay. There's nothing broken. Go back and play. And she went. Because mom would have lost her ever-loving mind, <laughs> shut down the game. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Because this is the, the, the mom's, this is the dad. Sometimes can be a little more, let it go. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have to experience pain. Men are, men are tend to be better at this. But I like the idea, though, that this is somewhat ties back to, or at least the idea of, of how to do it is, is sight and seeing. Like the gaze epitomizes this. I see you. I possess you. You're in my sight, but I, I can't grasp you. I'm, I'm, I don't have little fingers coming out of my eyes to grasp you, but I can still see you. It's a pure, chaste look, seeing you as a person, not as an object to possess. And so this is the contemplative gaze, where I behold, but I don't grasp. I contemplate you, but at a distance, at a distance. So there's a lot to reflect on there. And so I think that's, for me, the, the, the key of understanding this possession detachment. Is it easy to learn? No, it's not. Not easy to learn. But over time, we can pray for it to help have that chaste heart where we can love people with that freedom. But the thing that I really came to understand was, in reflecting on this, this distinction that I think is at the heart of being able to do this, or at least how I've been able to sort of like maintain space for so many people, 
but also, I think, to a certain degree, let people go do what they need to do. And it's the distinction between poverty and neediness. And maybe I could think of some better words for this, but for now, this is the best I have. And a lot of it is centered on what we talked about last time, the breaking of the heart. So again, the Lord will allow us to experience suffering that will break our hearts. And what he does is he's the one who makes space. He sort of hollows the heart out to increase the capacity. This is poverty. The poverty of having our heart broken, the poverty of suffering with others, the poverty of having our our, our heart hollowed out. And he's going to fill it with himself, of course, but with other people who we receive with open hands and open hearts. But the truth is, facing this poverty can make us feel very anxious, very insecure, where we're empty, where, okay, we have this heart, we have empty, Lord, I, I, want, I want to put people in it. I, I, want, I, want, I don't like the emptiness. I don't like the vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so we grasp possessions, possibly, uh, but also at others. Now, we could also see this as that emptiness, there's a much deeper emptiness, as we talked about, where we don't feel loved, we don't feel accepted. They can see it as both ways. One is the emptiness of the heart, but also is like, oh, the emptiness of I'm not loved, no one sees me. And so that poverty makes us feel insecure, and so we grasp. How do we grasp? Well, we, 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 we grasp because um, we, we want to produce results. We want to save other people. We want to hold them tight. It's sort of like the helicopter parents you've heard about. I'm going to be overprotective. I'm not going to let my children suffer. I'm not going to let anything happen. And why do we? Well, because we fear of losing love, of not being seen, fear of failure. I don't want to lose the sheep they've been given to me, so I'm going to keep them here because if they leave, I'm a failure. We, we, we want to save them. I see this all the time. We want to be save them from their, their evil ways or save them from the mistakes they make. And I tell people, your name is not Jesus Christ, all right? You're not. Your name is whatever. Sarah, Olivia, not Jesus. People are going to make dumb choices. You've got to let them do it. Even though it does hurt you, you have to respect their freedom. And so we, we want to sort of calculate and produce results. Uh, we're going to make these people holy according to our own plan. We're going to save them for according to our own plan. And all of this is from a desire to control. Desire to control. And I see this often, particularly with moms. And I'm not trying to be mean here, ladies. You're all thinking, like, he was so nice in the last days, just dumping on all the moms. No. <laughs> moms like to control. And they can hover over and they could smother, particularly their daughters. And it does not look good. It does not make people feel better about themselves. Dads can do it too. But again, moms tend to do more. And so what is it? It's fear. It's neediness, need for love, need for affirmation. And all of this does is it doesn't create peace and the freedom of possession attachment. It creates lots of anxiety, lots of anxiety. Constantly worrying about ourselves and our kids and all of this type of stuff. And there's no peace of mind and heart. And so others can't rest. Our heart is just filled with all this anxiety and others can't rest. Particularly probably your husband. But <laughs> this is what it is. 
this grasping out of our own poverty, our own neediness. But it's not unconditional love, and let me tell you, others know it. Others know it. Because again, as I said, so few people have experienced unconditional love. So few people have experienced that chaste love that they are shocked when someone actually loves them unconditionally. I don't, I don't handle it. And often they'll run. Wow, why is this person, this, this my boyfriend or my girlfriend or the, my friend or my priest or whatever, loving me unconditionally? And then when they realize that you don't need anything from them, that, that's the key. There's the poverty. I'm poor. I'm weak. I'm content with this. I'm going to let the Lord fill me up. Versus I'm poor. I need this to be filled up now. And I'm grasping to put stuff in it. And when we begin to use people for that, we real, they realize you don't really love me. You want something from me. Or you need something from me. You're using me. People particularly women, get it. They understand that this is happening. And so this is what unconditional love is. This is what the possession and attachment is. I love you, although I don't need anything from you. I don't need anything from you. And, and, so, and I can let you go and be yourself. You can make your mistakes, even, even if I know it's going to hurt you. And so this is, I'll, I'll, this is kind of weird. So I was writing this this morning, and I got a text message from a, a directee of mine. She's a focused missionary. And it, it, it just sort of really struck me that she has been wrestling the fact that she does not know how to accept my love because I don't need anything from her. She's never had that before. No one, no one's, they always wanted something from her. I just, I love her because she's, she's sweet. I believe the Lord gave her to me and she's making great progress, but she, she, she doesn't know how to handle it. She does know how to handle it actually, but it's something uncommon because people have been used to learn to love unconditionally and with the abundance of the capacity in the heart. And so I can tell you that I could do it because, well, I, I, I don't worry. I realize, and this may be boundaries, I'm not responsible for your emotions. Sometimes, like if you're hurting, I'm hurting too, but I'm not going to freak out about it. If you're having, look, you go deal with your emotions, go figure it, go get your therapy, go do what you need to do, go find your, put the, put the balm of Gilead on the wound there. And all I can do is give you to God. I'm here if you want. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to see and receive, but I'm not going to try to fix you. And so often, look, I learned it. You know, I'm a guy, I like to fix. When I was a young priest, I want to fix everybody. Then I realized, oh, no, if you try to fix things, it's like a kid trying to fix the, the broken clock. He's just going to mess it up even more. I'm not going to try to fix anything. I'm just going to try to be present in love. And if we do it well, and then we learn this, to not grasp out of our neediness and to live with the emptiness, we realize that we've got to take the blood and send it out of the ventricle. We've got to give birth. We've got to let people go. We cannot grasp. Whether it be your children, whether it be your spouse, particularly though your children, to let them go and make their own decisions. Will your kids make stupid decisions? Yes, they will. But you've got to let them do it. Now, granted, when they're 10, you don't necessarily need to let them do it. But I'm talking about when they're adults. You've trained them. You've formed them. Trust you've done your best. 
acknowledge, hey, I failed. I, I have not loved my kids perfectly. None of us have. As a priest, I haven't loved people perfectly. But hopefully you've loved them enough that the formation you've given and the love that you've given to them has changed them. And hopefully they know, here's the thing, that the blood that the heart sends out through the ventricle eventually is going to run through the body and come back. It's going to come back. The door is always open. They know that, hey, the door is always open. Open. The same blood is going to flow back to the heart. You always have a home. You always have a sanctuary. You always have a safe place. But you got to let them come and go. If the, blood, if, if the heart just like holds all the blood, it's going to explode. That's why you gotta, you got you to gotta clean those arteries out. So the blood can go everywhere it needs to. Letting them come and go, even when your kids are being avoidant. There has to be an open door policy, knowing they will be welcomed back even when they are sinning and made mistakes. They're not going to be judged. I know that like the way I think it works, like the blood goes out to the, and it gets oxygenated through the lungs and it goes back and then comes back to get more oxygen. And so, again, the blood that comes into the heart is blood that needs more oxygen. It needs more life. It needs more vigor. It doesn't come in strong. And so we realize when you come back, we are going to be here. But it's not easy. I think of Abraham offering Isaac back to, to, to God, the sacrifice back to God. And this is the sacrifice of giving our kids, giving our friends, giving those given to us back to the Lord. Do not belong to us. And it's going to be painful, like birth. Particularly sometimes when we, 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 the child is kicking against us. We become estranged from our children or our relatives or our, you know, brothers and sisters or whatever. All of these things are realities. I'm not saying that this is going to be easy. Sometimes, though, it'll be easier than others. But this is the process, the coming and the going, the coming and the going, always keeping the heart open to receive. And so it brings me back to uh, the parable of the prodigal son, which I've been talking about over and over and over again. It's my favorite parable, Luke chapter 15. So I really think if we meditate on it, it, it becomes the symbol of the father's house. The symbol of the father's house is the heart. Is the heart of God the father is our heart. And so notice both sons leave the father's house. Both of them even though he's given them everything. One leaves at first for the life of sin. He's going to go party, go pick up some prostitutes, go live with some pigs, do all that kind of stuff. That's escaping. The other is there, but he refuses to enter. So one leaves, one just refuses to enter. Now, of course, the one who leaves comes back, but both of them are rejecting the father's heart. Rejecting. And this is the people who, these sons have been given to the father. He recognizes it. They've been given to me, but they don't want to be here. So it always struck me. The younger son, the father doesn't chase after him. The younger son obviously has got some issues. You know, he's got some issues. He tells him, why do you got to leave? But he lets him go. He doesn't chase after him, which, of course, you think, well, you're supposed to go chase after the lost sheep. Maybe sometimes, but sometimes you got to let him go because you're going to grab that sheep and he's going to bite you. He's going to jump out. But he's still on the lookout for him. Remember, he saw him from a long distance. Hey, when you want to come back, 
Here it is. I'm here. And he goes outside to meet the older son and pleads with him, come into the house. We're having a big party here. It's good wine. We, we've killed the fatty calf. We're going to eat some big steaks. It's delicious. But notice when the younger son does come back, he welcomes him in. Makes him clean up a little bit first. But he welcomes him in. He restores his identity. He restores his sonship. And I believe he keeps the door open for the older son. Hey, listen. You know, you can hang out here and be miserable, but we're partying inside. But I'm not going to force you to come in. This is ultimately, hell is a state of self-exclusion from heaven. Hell is a person who gets to heaven, sees the party, and says, I don't want any of that. You people are all jerks. And then God says, I respect that. You'll stay outside. I'm not going to force you to come inside. Have you, ever, you ever, like, had a party or something, and your kids didn't want to do it, and you force them? I'm going to force you to have fun. No. <laughs> That's the worst thing ever. You cannot force anybody to have fun. So there's somebody in heaven just, I'm not going to have fun for all eternity. That's why it's eternal, because the party goes on forever. This is the heart, though, of the father or the mother or any of us. We want our kids inside of our house. We want all the people who we love, who've been given to us. I want them inside of my house. And, and sometimes that when we have to let them go because they have to go get a job and get married and do whatever they do, or sometimes when they say, well, I don't like you, you're making me mad, it hurts. The heart is broken. I really think like, so here, the father in this parable, even though he's supposed to be God the father, he's batting zero. Maybe he's batting 500. But both of the sons basically said, Dad, up yours. Was he thinking to himself like, what? Did I do something wrong? Maybe he did. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he wasn't the best dad. And hopefully maybe he apologized. And of course, as parents, we often unintentionally hurt our children, but we still want them back. And so this is the thing. This is the heart that doesn't grasp, the heart that allows people to come and go, receives the gifts that the Lord gives, but if he takes them back, he gives them the freedom, it's possession and detachment. And one of the most beautiful sort of writings I've seen this is from Henry Nowen, who many of you may have read The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he talks about first the younger son and the older son and then the father, the heart of the father. And he talks about from his own experience and living in large community with the mentally handicapped. Um, and he's there as the priest there with these, these people whom, with whom he's ministering. And he's talking about the heart of the father. I think it's the heart of the mother. It's the heart of any of us who are wanting to love other people, who are wanting to be with them, but either they don't have the capacity for it or they're not interested or they got to go do their own thing. He says, the loneliness of the Father, the loneliness of God, the ultimate loneliness of compassion. Loneliness, I want to suffer with you. I do not want to wait, he's speaking as himself, to wait until my children come home. I want to be with them where they are in a foreign country or on the forum with the servants. I do not want to remain silent about what happened. I'm curious to hear the whole story and have countless questions to ask. I do not want to keep stretching my hands out when there are so few who are willing to be embraced, especially when fathers and father figures are considered by many the source of their problems. So he's saying, like, hey, I want to I want to welcome everybody. I want to love everybody. But there are some people who don't want it. And so there's a certain acceptance of it, but there's an acceptance of being lonely. And again, I see this, you know, now I'm at the point where most of my friends have kids, their kids are moving out of the house and they're they're there alone with their spouses, and there's a certain loneliness. 
Now, granted, they probably thought it was going to be really, really nice when the kids are running around destroying everything, that they can't wait for a little loneliness, but it is. got to let the kids go. Let our loved ones go, our friends that move to another country, whatever it is. This is how, how life goes. And we can also, of course, see it in the life of Mary, and this is where I really want to kind of focus a, a bit on it, that Mary had to let Jesus go on his public mission. Joseph was probably saying, you lived in this house for 30 years, go. <laughs> Mary's like, no, I love having Jesus here. This is great. She missed him. But he, 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 was, he had to go do his own thing. And, and then the real point, as I, I'm looking at these different mysteries of the heart, we look first at the Annunciation, the, the, the Mary's heart as a home or sanctuary. Then we looked at the visitation receiving Elizabeth. And then we looked at her on the way of the cross, at the foot of the cross, and now it's the ascension. She's got to let Jesus go. And she missed him. Couldn't be wait to be with him again. And I think it shows it's okay to miss people. I miss these people. So Mary had to say, Jesus, I can't, I can't hold you. You got to go. We're going to see where this comes up elsewhere. And so this is, we see it in the life of the parable. We see it in the life of Mary. We see it in our own lives. And how I kind of learned it and sort of sharing my own story. So as I said, you know, I think priests, when they leave a parish, you got to say goodbye. You can still keep in touch, but you have your new family. You got to go take care of and all that. And then working for 11 years with college students, um, you, you grow stronger bonds with your students. If you're not a loser, chaplain, and you're present to your kids, some, some are not, but you're basically like a parishioner, you'll see them like on a Sunday for an hour. But at a campus ministry, they get there at 7 a.m. and they leave at 10 p.m. and you're hanging out with them on the weekends for four years, sometimes five or six years, <laughs> sometimes seven years, sometimes seven years, in case of one particular student who I'm very fond of. Uh, you grow, and they, they see you. Like, you just see the priest when he's preaching. You don't see the priest when he's upset. You don't see the priest when he's having a bad day. His staff does. We have some former staff members in here who know what that's like. But it's like a family. You learn to love people through it. Some of the stuff that I did at the campus ministry, I did to normal parishioners, they'd be writing to the bishop. But because, hey, I know Father, Father has good days, and I, we, we learn to love and accept each other. But what happens is, is even that, you're going to see students who make bad choices, who are once faithful, but they make bad choices, and they think you're going to judge them, and they leave the church. I don't want to talk to y'all anymore. Or then after four years, the, the cycle, these kids who are there for four years, they leave, they move, they go get a job, they get married, and you miss them. You still may keep in touch with them, but after not seeing someone for four every day for four years, wow, you, you realize like some people I wish would leave. And then, <laughs> then I'm like, wow, I, I miss him. But the truth is, I, and, and some of you all will know this, the, the, the way that I really, I think, learned this was I did a lot of work, particularly in my last seven years, working vocations. I did mostly vocations. The campus ministry was blessed to have over almost 100 young men or women in a religious life or, or uh, seminary. And so, like the guys, whatever. I'm going to the seminary, you see them back and forth. But I did a lot of work with girls. I sent over 30 young women to the convent. There's still 20 that are still there. And I don't know, I'm a girl dad, I guess. I love my girls. <laughs> and, and you spend time with them, but 
you don't get to really talk to them anymore. When you become a nun, they don't talk to you. Particularly if they've been cloistered. Some of y'all know that in this room. Like, I don't want anybody to join a cloister. That's the worst idea possible. I have no desire for that. And, and, but like learning, so after the first or second time is difficult, after 30, whatever. I mean, it still is not pleasant, but you know, you've got to go do what you got to do. And I've seen it, it's not easy, and particularly it's not easy for moms. Some of the moms here know it's not easy. However, there are other moms who completely freaking lose it. As soon as the daughter brings up the idea they're going to become a nun, I mean, they just go ballistic. Why? I understand it's difficult, but they want to, they're dominating control in their daughter's lives. I want granddaughters. No, that is her uterus, not yours. <laughs> she owes you nothing when it comes to granddaughters. But this just fury that goes on and this manipulation and goodness gracious. But there are the ones, it's not easy, but it's a good example. It's, hey, you don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord. Go do what you need to do, even though I may not understand it. Go let him do God's will. And again, you're going to see him in the next life, we hope, you know. And so that's for me, like that process of learning to say, all right, go be a sister. Go do what you need to do. But you got to do what the Lord wants. You kind of learn, your heart, or your heart gets hollowed out, and you kind of learn to let him go. But you also learn, I think, and again, many of you kids who get married, they move to another country. You hear from them once a month, and you miss them. It would be nice if you saw them more often. But they got to go live their own lives, and you, you, can't, you can't. You can't dominate. You can't control. But the paradox is, if you let them go, they're still with you. They stay in your heart and your prayers and your thoughts. It still breaks your heart. You miss your kids. But that, that, that broken heart can do what? Be offered to Christ as a prayer of intercession, and your heart can expand. For the Lord to give you more people in your ministry, especially the prayer of a mother, becomes possible, a very, very powerful, and it creates a larger space. But I, I want to end with one last, so before I give you a little homework, one last thing of these reflections. Is this kind of making sense here? This is kind of all over the place as I'm putting these together. I didn't know how to put all these pieces together. This idea of not clinging is a very, very specific passage it deals not with Mary, but with Mary Magdalene. You know the passage I'm talking about. Easter morning, when she sees Jesus, and Jesus says, Do not hold on to me. Do not grasp. I have not yet ascended to the Father. And so what, is, what, is, what does that mean? And there are different passages there. But basically, Jesus is saying, Do not hold on to me. Do not grasp me. I've got to go to the Father. But if you grasp me, and you don't let me go now in my physical presence and let me go to the Father, guess what you won't have? The Eucharist, the Spirit. And so Christ says, I will leave this presence, but now we have Christ present in the Eucharist. And I think this is something that kind of, in a real sense, I could, if I had a fifth talk, I could tie everything together with this, is Christ's Eucharistic presence of what? The Eucharistic heart of Jesus it is always present to us. Christ is there seeing us, uh, willing to listen to us, there in our good times and our bads. He's present, but you can't, control, you can't control him. You can't grasp him. He's there. He's always delighted to see us when we come to visit him. And I think in a certain sense, the deep meditation, everything we've talked about really finds its fulfillment in the Eucharist. 
coming to Mass, after receiving the gift of the Eucharist, and even being set out after Mass. Go, go in peace, go spread the, go spread the gospel. So in a certain sense, the, 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 the church is the sanctuary, the church is the heart, and the Eucharist is there at the very, very center of the sanctuary. Again, I didn't have time to think of all that stuff. That just came to me this morning, but y'all can give, a, you know, give me some ideas later on. Well, not, not yet. I don't give you the homework yet. I haven't given you the homework yet. So this is just me, like, reflecting on this. So there's Mary letting Jesus go, but, like, Mary Magdalene, the words of not, not holding on. What is your homework? Well, granted, you have about an hour to do your homework, so I'm not going to give you a lot. But I really wanted to f- finish on that theme of Mary, meditating on Mary at the ascension of Jesus. We don't normally think of that. We think, oh, Jesus is ascending to heaven. Well, he left, she, he left the Mary and the apostles. What was Mary like? Like, was she bummed? You know, did she miss her son Jesus? Looking forward to seeing him. Reflecting on her heart. Realizing, I got to let Jesus go. I can't hold on to him. I can't, like, tie a string to his toe and use him like a, a balloon or something. I let him float away. But yet, still, being able to pray, hoping to see him, having her heart and asking for that same Marian disposition in our own hearts. So we'll close here with the glory be. I think we have about an hour before um, Mass, and then we'll have Mass, and then we'll, we'll close off a few little comments, but hopefully this gives you something to reflect on the rest of your day. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was at the beginning, it's now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.